Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Click Here, which is about all things cyber and intelligence. Though the, may, the name may ring a bell because I was a longtime counterterrorism and investigations correspondent at NPR. And I'm here today to talk to a reporter named Heath Drusen. And we're going to talk about a podcast he created and hosts called Extremely American. And this podcast is a deep dive into the culture of militias and, the far, and to show how the far right is reshaping the political landscape in America. We'd like to thank Boise State Public Radio and NPR for hosting this event. And of course, post-industrial media who made the podcast possible. So you can find Extremely American anywhere you get your podcasts. And we'll be joined later in the hour by Christina Lopez. She's a senior researcher at Grafica's uh, Intel and Analysis team. And we'll broaden out our conversation a little bit. Uh, we're recording this conversation and we could end up using it on air or online. I should also tell you that we're going to be taking some questions during this program. So if you'd like to ask something, please press the mic icon at the bottom left of your screen. You have to be on your phone, not your desktop to talk to us. Um, and we won't take any questions from anonymous accounts. Uh, there's limited time. So please just uh, one thought per person and uh, a question that actually is a question. And we'll unmute, unmute you to ask the question, quickly introduce yourself, ask the question, and then we'll meet you, uh, mute you again so we can answer. Um, please be respectful. I think this goes without saying. And we reserve the right to mute you and block you if you're disrespectful to the speakers or to our listeners, but we don't expect any of that is going to happen. So let me just start by saying, um, welcome, Heath. Hey, Dina. It's great talking to you again. Great talking to you too. Um, so I took a listen to this podcast. It's great, extremely American. And um, you know, I did a lot of reporting for NPR on January 6th, uh, on January 6th and talked to a lot of the January 6th participants. And I wondered, in listening to your podcast, um, you know, first of all, can you just describe it to us? Why, why did you do this? What did, how would you sum up your podcast in an elevator pitch? Um, well, I, I think maybe what might surprise some people is that I actually started on this before January 6th. Um, and was kind of in the early stages of putting it together and then January 6th happened. And I thought, oh, wow, okay. Um, I thought this was relevant anyway, but this is sort of more relevant than ever. Um, but what got me started on it is, you know, I live in Idaho and I was reporting there for a project uh, called Guns in America that looked at the role of guns in American life. And Idaho is kind of a stronghold of militia movements. So they were already on my radar and um, the Second Amendment is a huge sort of foundational, um, it's a foundational issue for, um, for these groups. So I was, I was looking at them already. This is the right to bear arms. Exactly, exactly. Um, gun rights, are, that is the number one issue by far for these groups. So I was looking at them through that lens. What made me think that they were becoming more relevant was that I started seeing them in the state house. I started seeing them, you know, attending um, the legislative session in Idaho. And then I even saw them lobbying and I saw them actually helping to craft some legislation. Um, a lot of far right lawmakers started not only taking them seriously, but kind of looking at them as, as kind of constitutional experts to consult with. So that's where it kind of went from um, maybe more of a passing interest to something where I thought, okay, something's changing. You know, these guys aren't just out in the woods, in the mountains, 
uh, shooting. These guys are interested in actual government. They're interested in policy and they're interested in power. Um, and I saw them being effective. So yeah, the January 6th, definitely it's, um, it, it kind of shaped the story and it made it much more urgent, but I already saw these guys on the rise, uh, well before January 6th, actually. And, and do you think, I mean, my sense of it, when I was talking to people up who were on, uh, part of the January 6th demonstrations, my sense of it is that just about everybody seemed to mention COVID either they were upset about the masks or the mandates or having to get a vaccine or having to carry a card or that sort of thing. And, or, or, you know, COVID restrictions, they were small business people and COVID restrictions ended up closing their businesses. Um, how much do you think COVID really gave oxygen to these groups? So, you know, they already, I think were gaining some power and influence and legitimacy um, especially as uh, politics on the right um, kind of slid farther to the right and they started being embraced by some politicians. But I would say that COVID basically supercharged both their trajectory and their ambitions. Um, they saw the COVID restrictions as something that was sort of a, an existential threat to what they see as fundamental freedoms. And what was very interesting to see was um, they basically combined their powers with a lot of other far-right movements that wouldn't necessarily have been connected with them in the past. They might have been friendly, um, but they weren't necessarily looking at, um, they weren't looking at the same issues. So for example, um, anti-vaxxers. Anti-vaxxers and militia groups, they joined forces. And it's not that they might not have kind of been in the same circles before, but now they're actually planning rallies together. They're speaking at these rallies. Um, they are, you know, doing basically civil disobedience, uh, protesting pandemic orders. Um, and, and another group that actually came in, <laughs> kind of an oldie but a goodie, uh, is the John Birch Society. Now, for people who, uh, people who might be uh, younger than, you know, 75 years old, uh, they might not be familiar with the John Birch Society, depending on where they are in the country. But this is a, a, an ultra-right group that used to say that Eisenhower was a communist. That's how far right they are. Um, and they really haven't changed. And, and they've actually become a force again. It's kind of geographic. Um, they're, a little more, uh, they're a little more popular in the West. But um, they've really become kind of a political force in these places. And you see, you see people right up to the lieutenant governor of Idaho speaking at their rallies. And you'll also see militia members there, uh, anti-vaxxers, all kind of coming together under this anti-COVID restriction umbrella. And I think it's really kind of, uh, as the, the military would call it, a force multiplier. I mean, I think it's really increased their, uh, their power and their visibility. And um, do you think that they would be as prominent today if we hadn't had the pandemic? I don't think so, or at least it would have been slower. Um, I do think the pandemic, at the very least, sped up their rise to prominence. Um, I think what the pandemic has done, um, you know, this is beyond malicious, but I think it's, it's, it's really kind of moved the window of what people see as, as kind of respectable political conversation. I think it's really, it's made some fringe things uh, feel acceptable to, um, to a lot of people. 
I wouldn't say even close to a majority of people, but certainly enough that, um, you know, that these are becoming campaign issues, especially in Republican primaries, uh, especially anti-COVID stuff. And, you know, in some cases, even to the point of really kind of anti-science stuff. So I think that also made militias more palatable to some people because they saw them as allies. Um, and certainly they have been allies. And you'll see a lot of the, the younger, savvier um, militia leaders who they know, you know, they know how to how to navigate a state house. They know how to talk to politicians. They're not content to just sort of shake their fists at them anymore. Um, and they've been and they've been really effective. They they they've seen how the GOP has kind of lurched to the right and they've kind of jumped onto that um, that far right fringe of it. And in some cases, become uh, real power brokers. So, uh, by extension, now that COVID seems to at least be somewhat in decline, and you have a lot of governors who are rolling back these mask mandates, do these groups sort of lose some of their platform as all this gets rolled back? So I think. Or do they have too much momentum? I, I, I think that's the big question. I think they're going to have to adjust um, because. If, and let's hope, you know, we've all been hoping that COVID fades away for a long time now. So let's hope that that COVID does, and it does seem to be uh, going in the right direction in a lot of places. I think that is going to take away, it's going to take away a platform for these, for these groups. And I think it's going to, it's going to maybe make it harder for them to get support from people who might not have necessarily been into those kind of politics before, maybe more mainstream Republicans who were kind of radicalized by being angry about COVID restrictions. If you take that anger away, um, you're going to have to replace it with another issue that you present as urgent. So I do think that they've risen too much to go away quickly. Um, but I do think they're going to have to adjust because they're going to have to find another issue. You know, right another now we're galvanizing have... issue. Exactly. Exactly. And, and frankly, I don't think gun rights is enough for them. Um, right. You know, that's a galvanizing issue on the right, but frankly, there's a lot of people who have varying views, even on the right about red lines for gun issues. So they're really going to have to find another issue. And I have seen them really um, talking about um talking about uh, voter fraud a lot more. And, right. um, you know, there hasn't been much evidence of voter fraud, but they have certainly latched onto that sort of stop the steal movement. And I wonder if that's kind of what they're looking at as their next big thing to, to keep right. themselves going. Well, so the, the title of this conversation uh, is Beyond January 6th, How Militias Are Trying to Remake America. And we're talking about Extremely American, a new podcast uh, with Heath, Drus Heath Drusen. But I want to ask one more January 6th question, if I could. And that is, in your opinion, was January 6th the beginning of something or sort of the culmination of something? <laughs> here's, a, here's a bit of a cop-out answer. I'd say it's a little bit of both, but also kind of a distraction from, I think, perhaps some more lasting efforts that are being made on the part of militias and other far-right groups. So certainly before January 6th, I saw that anger building. Um, you know, I went to stop the steel rallies, local stuff in Idaho, and I was pretty taken aback uh, by how how really angry people were and the kind of violent rhetoric they were they were making. I, I would love to say that I predicted January 6th. I'm not I'm certainly not saying that. 
But I did think it was going to blow up this anger into something. I kind of thought it would be more isolated violence. Um, I was pretty shocked to see this huge group ransacking the Capitol. Um, but you could see that kind of anger building. Now, um, was that I something do... that Trump was soaking or was that something independent of him? Or can we tell? I mean, I think without Trump, you don't necessarily have that. But certainly because Trump stoked it, you had a lot of other politicians um, locally, which I think is really important, that were taking that message kind of directly to people who were, who were getting angry about it. So I saw that certainly in Idaho. I saw that um, Trump's message trickled down and you had far right leaders who were taking it and you know organizing rallies with a few hundred people and marching through the streets even. Um, so it did start with Trump. I, I think you can't ignore that. I think without Trump, you, you, you wouldn't necessarily have that. And I think he gave license to people who might otherwise not have taken up that message to do it. And look, you know, if the president says something for, for, for a lot of supporters, that lends legitimacy. And I do think there were people out there who, you know, legitimately think the election was stolen. And once you think that is the case, then I think it really changes your calculation as far as what you're willing to do to stop it. Even if, you know, as we need to point out, there was no evidence that there was a stolen election. Oh, and I will say, I, 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 I forgot the, of an important point. The, way, the reason I say it maybe was a bit of a distraction for more important issues is that, um, you know, what I get into in this podcast is that what these groups are doing that's having more lasting effect in January 6th potentially is that they are taking aim at local office. They're winning school board seats. They're winning library board seats. When you start to read about book bans, that's a lot of these groups. It's militias. It's groups like the Proud Boys. And it's other far-right groups that might not be exactly in that milieu, but kind of allies. Dina, did we lose you? Yeah, we just lost Dina. She is going to be right back. So just one moment. So in the meantime, I'm, uh, in the meantime, I can talk uh, about a specific example of what I'm talking about um, when I'm talking about these groups that are looking to local government. You know, in episode three, I visited this um, pretty blue community in Washington state called Whidbey Island. And what was happening there, I actually went to go to a militia rally, a 3 percenter militia rally. And it was really surprising that the rally was happening because this place, again, it, it's a it's it's you know, it's it's not a, a far left place by any stretch, but they, they vote pretty solidly Democratic, um, pretty liberal politics. And this was happening. And what actually had been happening uh, in the lead up to it was this three percent group. They took over a local community group. It's actually a Grange Hall, which is like an agricultural group. But what they what they really function as now is more of a community uh, gathering place. And it really shocked people on the island. Um, you know, this far right group took it over. And then they basically, uh, they didn't accept any applications from people to join um, who weren't aligned with them. And it turned out that was just sort of the first, uh, the opening salvo in this battle for the soul of this island. And I won't spoil the end of the episode, but um, what happened was this group took aim at the school board. And um, there was this really, um, really ugly, spirited campaign 
for the school board that a lot of people saw as a, a, a real battle for the community. Um, and I think we have Dina back, so I will let her take it from here. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry about that little technical difficulty, but we're back. Um, or I'm back anyway. So so explain to me, is this how is this different than, say, the earliest stirrings of the Tea Party movement, which seemed to really sort of take people aback because it was so aggressive? Um, is this is this a sort of a the Tea Party on steroids? Because a lot of the things that they believe seem to be really similar. I think you can see some of the roots of this in the Tea Party. Um, you know, I think the Tea Party kind of showed people that um, more extreme politics could be a winner in some places. Um, I do think, I do think it's a little bit different in that you know the Tea Party was kind of far right politics, but when you're talking about militias. You know, you're talking about armed groups who they they kind of put a softer, gentler face on things. But when it comes down to it, they are training for potential violent conflict with the government. Um, if you push them on it, they'll say it. You know, if the government crosses a certain line and becomes, in their view, tyrannical, then they're prepared to fight that government. I think that's a fundamental difference with the Tea Party. Um, not that the Tea Party didn't have plenty of gun owners and, and you know, support for gun rights. But this takes it a step farther. And I think we have seen actually the politics go a little bit farther and the rhetoric get, um, get more, you know, more heated and at times more violent. Um, and, you know, you're even seeing uh, quite a few people in the Republican Party, um, right up to Donald Trump, talk about the January folks gen, uh, arrested in connection with the January 6th insurrection as political prisoners. So, you know, there's some kind of excusing of actual violence. So I think without the Tea Party, I don't know, maybe this didn't happen. Maybe that laid the groundwork. But I certainly think this has gone farther. And I think we've also seen, uh, we've seen Republicans be much more hesitant to condemn these groups. Uh, we've certainly seen some embrace them. And I think we've seen a lot of Republicans who might be repelled by these ideas and these groups who've stayed silent because they're worried. You know, I mean, part of what they're worried about is losing a primary. Uh, for for not being far enough to the right. Well, maybe uh, Teddy Wilson can help us a little bit and understand this. Uh, Teddy, I guess you're a rep you're a reporter. Can you introduce yourself? I think your mic is open. Uh, howdy, uh, y'all. Yes, I, I'm a I'm a journalist and researcher. Um, I've been researching the far right and extremist movements for about a decade. And um, thanks for hosting the space. And I had a question for Heath. Um, you know, the Pacific Northwest has for several decades now been kind of a central location for a lot of different types of extremist movements, whether you're talking about the militia movement, uh, the white supremacist movement, there's been a lot of um, extremist anti-abortion uh, movements that have been uh, centered there as well. So, you know, I, uh, for f folks that aren't from the Pacific Northwest, could you kind of explain a little bit about what it is about that area of the country that attracts these movements? That that um, why do these movements seem to seed so well there? Um, thanks so much for the question. It's a great question and a great uh, segue to, for me to mention an episode that gets into that pretty specifically. Um, you know, in one episode, I, I it's called the Fifty First State. I look at what's known as the American readout. 
And um, that's kind of a political migration movement in North Idaho, Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon, and some other areas around there. Um, and I think a big draw for that area is that there's a lot of empty space. You know, um, there's a lot of mountains and forest and not a lot of people. And I think historically, people have felt very comfortable going there and being left alone to do things sometimes that are pretty far out of the mainstream. Uh, and that might be charitable for some of these groups. You know, obviously you alluded to the Aryan nations. That was a neo-Nazi group that felt like they could go out and train a new generation of violent neo-Nazis out in the woods and mountains. So, um, you know, I think part of it's just a very simple fact of it's a sparsely populated area with some really rugged terrain and some already some sympathetic views up there. And people felt like they could disappear. Now, I, I think there's also, um, you know, there's also sort of a, a, a historic kind of cultural aspect to it, uh, certainly in a place like Idaho, where people for, you know, the history of the state have had to kind of make it on their own. Um, and a lot of times in that history, you know, they might not have the federal government anywhere close to help them out if something does go wrong. Now, that's not to say that, um, you know, people who are able to live off the land and uh, are able to kind of make it on their own are necessarily going to join these groups. But I think you do have that, um, you do have that kind of rooted, uh, you know, leave me be, let me take care of myself kind of culture in a lot of these places that might leave some people a little more open to these ideologies. So let me let me put a, a different label on that, if I could, Heath, just to continue what you're saying. Is it what's really the difference between you know libertarianism, which is sort of gets to the heart of what you're talking about? I'm on my own. The government doesn't need to help me. I can take care of it. What's the difference between libertarian ideology and militia ideology? Is it is there a difference? I, I mean, is the only difference that one has guns, or are they really different? Well, that's, and that's a really, that's a really good question. And um, I would say the short answer is the, the guns are a big difference, but I will say, you know, I think libertarian ideology tends to be a little more of a cerebral look at, um, you know, at what the constitution means and, and how government should function. And I think there's a lot of crossover, but when you get into the militia movement, they're a lot more focused on the possibility of revolution and tyranny as opposed to stripping government down from the inside. Um, and I think the guns are a big part of that. You know, you kind of have this um, implicit, th they probably wouldn't agree with the word threat, but I mean, you have this, you know, implicit um, kind of power cloud. Hey, say that again. An implicit power dynamic. It changes when you're exactly, exactly, exactly. And, you know, we saw it, right? I mean, we saw that standoff in Nevada back in 2014 at the Bundy Ranch where the guys with guns came down. A lot of them were in militias and the government backed off. So, you know, you wouldn't see libertarians necessarily organizing a, uh, a reaction like that. So I would say their ideologies can be kind of similar. But I would also say that militia groups tend to have a lot more novel ideas about the Constitution than your sort of classic libertarians, where they really, some of them actually, one of them even told me he's not a, a, a citizen of the United States, he's a citizen of the country of Idaho, which uh, that, is, that is a you know certainly a unique idea, and I think some libertarians might actually even see that as a, a little far afield. Although, although we've heard that from Texas too, right? That's sure, here. sure. That would be another example. But let me bring in somebody else into this conversation. 
Christina Lopez is a senior researcher at Graphica's Intel and Analysis team, and she studies disinformation and far-right extremism. And I wanted to bring her into the conversation too. Are you, are you there, Christina? Yes, thank you so much for inviting me. You're welcome. Uh, so you've been studying far-right extremism for some time. And what do you think the average person, I mean, uh, Heath went right on the ground level, you know, the level of the sidewalks, or I guess the level of the, the fields and prairies with these people. What do you think that the average person doesn't understand about this movement and the way it's developing in the U.S.? I think one of the things that is important to understand is how I would say uh, spread out this movement is and how it coalesces around the same general ideas and has a lot of crossover ideologically, but there are many different uh, separated efforts attempting to do the same thing, basically get more recruits to join them, grow their power, and basically accelerate change in what they see as a government that is not responding to their needs or, or their wants, or it's um, exerting more power than the Constitution gives it. And so that is the ideological underpinning. But the way that it manifests online changes a lot depending on uh, things that range from how savvy the the organizers are in the different platforms. There are some folks who are incredibly savvy at newer platforms, understand the internet, know exactly how memes and virality work and are able to hijack trends online that might not even be ideological and turn them to their own advantage. They are incredibly good at figuring out how the news cycle or content on the internet um, can affect the attention of, of audiences. And one great example is looking right now at the different convoys that have been organized around the idea that COVID health mandates have gone too far. You see a wide range of political actors and extremist actors that haven't been that involved necessarily with, uh, with COVID, but see in this moment uh, of an interesting or a great excuse to make a lot of hashtag content that can reach a lot of different audiences. And I think like that's important to understand that when we're talking about extremism, we're not talking about necessarily um, a, a disciplined column of centralized leadership. It's very scattered and tends to change. And, and the, the way that they operate largely depends on like how savvy they are online and which platforms they are using to get to the audiences or communities that they, they want to target for recruiting. So if you're just joining us, I'm Dina Temple-Raston. I'm the host of a new podcast called Click Here, which is about cyber and intelligence. And today we're talking to Heath Drusen, the host of the podcast Extremely American, and Christina Lopez, who re researches the far-right movements for the data analysis firm Graphica. And... Um, Christina and, and, and Heath, uh, well, Christina first, did you see January 6th coming? Did we miss something? I want to say that most folks who have been in this space and who usually keep up with the content that far-right extremists and different MAGA influencers 
make, uh, we knew something was coming. I don't know that we could have predicted how big or how violent it really got or how unprepared authorities would be to face it. I think that the rhetoric, especially in Facebook groups and Telegram groups, um, functioning or operating under the hashtag stop the steal, um, like rallying cry, that rhetoric was incredibly transparent, mostly about the sentiment and the intentions of the movement, that that sentiment that was appealing kind of to a big tent movement with funding and connections to really established political actors. I think that your previous mention of the Tea Party is especially useful to think about this because it had all the looks of a incredibly grassroots populist movement, but definitely the financing and the organizing of, of more established political actors and, and, and PACs that are connected to, to the political establishment of the right. And so I think that one thing that was consistently missed um, is how seriously to take these conversations and this sort of rhetoric online. I don't know that anyone missed that something was going to happen. What I believe affected folks' like, capacity to respond or what in general affected coverage of how risky this threat actually was, was this belief somewhat, I think, naive and innocent that I think we are um, overcoming in general that, that tends to see what we see online as, as mostly bluster or hyperbolic or things that just happen online or fake news. When in reality, we're seeing that um, there was a movement that was angry enough to cross a lot of lines that even a lot of established pundits uh, didn't think anyone could ever cross, like challenge a peaceful democratic transfer of power. So at this point, there is enough evidence that there is enough uh, that the sentiment is there at least to organize and show up in the real world even if online there's a lot of luster, there is also like the intention and the capacity to mobilize and organize and show yeah, up in the real world. Yeah, there's sort of this idea that, that the internet used to be the internet, but now the internet, so the world used to affect the internet, then the internet was the internet, now the internet is affecting the world in a sense. So it's broken through that other barrier and it's creating events that affect the real world, whereas before it was kind of in cyberspace, in the ether. Let me just say quickly here, we're, we're taking questions. So if you want to ask something, please press the mic icon on the bottom of your screen. You have to be on your phone, uh, not your desktop to talk to us. And uh, we're interested in hearing what you think. And uh, let me ask um, Heath, you uh, another question here. And that is, um, are militia members good politicians and legislators? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And um, I would say it's a mixed bag. Um, I do think, you know, this this latest generation, especially guys who are in the three percent movement, I think they have been at the very least very effective at getting their views, um, getting their views at least heard in the halls of power. So, so I will who the three percenters are, because a lot has been said about this uh uh, where their name came from, how it's historically inaccurate. Can you can right. you just do that really quickly? Absolutely. So the three percenters, I would argue, probably the most important wing of the militia movement right now 
it's a national movement more than a national group. It's sort of a set of ideas and people will get, they'll basically open up franchises. They'll just open up 3% chapters. Um, but there's no centralized leadership. Uh, they had a central thought leader, but he died a few years ago. Um, and basically there are these very loosely affiliated chapters that um, pop up all over the country. So what makes them really powerful is that they're totally decentralized and anybody can start a 3% chapter. Um, it also weakens them a bit in that there's some infighting and a lot of them disagree with each other over, over, over a lot of things. But, um, but they've really proliferated and they've been really good at recruiting. And I've seen the 3 percenters more than anybody else. You might have heard, heard of the Oath Keepers, sort of the other national militia group. I would say the 3 percenters have been much more effective at getting the ears of politicians. A lot of far-right politicians will consult with them. Some far-right politicians who are in elected office, I'm talking about state representatives, are actually in the 3%. They'll say they're in the 3%. So, um, so I think they have been very effective with that. I would say the few legislators that I've seen, and I will say we're going to probably see more of them uh, in this next election, but the few I've seen... So far, they've been backbenchers, um, and they've been pretty fringy. Even in uh, you know pretty pretty ruby red Idaho, they've been pretty fringy, and I haven't seen them accomplish too much. Um, but they're loud, and um, you know, and they're and they're and they're getting louder, and they're getting uh, larger in numbers. So I don't think they've been terribly effective as legislators so far. I think they've been more effective as lobbyists. Um, but I think after this election, we might, um, we might need to recalibrate that thinking. So let's go to a question again from the people who are listening. And uh, Teresa, uh, we want to go with you. You've lined up for a question. Just make sure your mic is on and please go ahead. Did we lose Teresa? Looks like she is gone, actually. Sorry, Teresa. I hope we can get you back so we can hear your question. Um, so Heath, and maybe you can jump in here oh, too, Christina. Me? I'm interested in the relationship between militias and law enforcement. When I did a lot of this January 6th reporting for NPR, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 12% of the people who were arrested uh, in, one one in one shape or form uh, were law enforcement. What what is the what is the relationship? And and you know, in your podcast, you talk about sometimes law enforcement. One of these people with the militias says that law enforcement asks for their help. Do they just say that the police ask for their help, or are the police really asking for their help? Well, I think it's complicated, and I think it's a little bit of both. Um, obviously, when these guys do something that kind of gets them in trouble or gets them some bad press. It's convenient to say, well, the cops asked us to help. Now, having said that, I think there's evidence that sometimes police have been extremely friendly, if not actually asking for help. It's a real mixed bag, though, because while you do have police who have been sympathetic and you've even had um, police who have been shown to be part of groups like the Oath Keepers, for example, um, you know, there, there's, there's this big thing hanging in the background where when you've got groups that are talking about... Um, you know, they're talking about a potential fight with a quote unquote tyrannical government. Well, if you're trading bullets with the, you know, the government, you're talking about 
troops, you're talking about law enforcement. I mean, there's no way of getting around it. If there is this showdown, then you are talking about a fight with cops. So, you know, I've, I've seen, heard some real wildly divergent views from police. Um, some of them are very sympathetic, even sort of part of the broader militia movement. And others are repulsed, uh, especially by what they saw on January 6th, where a number of police officers were injured. One officer died following the riot. Um, so, yes, it's it's very complicated. But I would say there's more closeness than a lot of people are comfortable with in certain places. Got it. And I think Teresa is back. Yeah. Teresa? Can you hear me? Oh, sorry. Yes, please. Sorry we lost you. Go ahead. Yeah, my name's Teresa, and I'm from Idaho, um, so familiar with Heath's work. I just, are you all surprised at, I would just say, the complete leadership vacuum from Republicans um, pushing back on some of this? I just kind of had expected January 6th to be the point where they would say, oh, wow, we need to pay more attention to these militia movements and these things that have been happening. And, you know, it's frustrating and honestly still a little surprising that there's not a more aggressive and public stand against, you know, these lies about voter fraud. And I'm just, it seems like we're seeing a few several legislators who maybe at one point would have been qualified as, mainstream or rational Republicans kind of trying to find a way to still play to those crowds. And I'm just curious, you know, was that surprising to you all? And do you see that changing anytime soon? What do you think, Keith? I mean, I think if you, I think it's less surprising when you think of it as a politician who is facing a primary, a Republican primary where there's going to be 25 or 30% turnout and it's only going to be the hardcore activist base of the party, which is going to be much more far to the right. Um, so if you're looking at it that way, and you, you, you've you seen certainly a lot of more mainstream Republicans get primary challengers, then I think it's less surprising. Because um, I think some of these folks, um, and you know, maybe it's short-sighted, maybe they're wrong, but I think they think that it will hurt them in a primary to speak out against the far right of the party. Um, so I, I, I think really ultimately it's a political calculation, but you know, does it matter if it's a political calculation, if it then kind of becomes the party mantra? Probably not. We're probably talking semantics. So uh, Christina, let me get you in here. I'm sorry that uh, we went to some other questions. I, you know, we've been talking for 40 minutes about this and I feel like we, we should at least, uh, tip our hats to possible solutions. And, you know, my background is terrorism. So counterterrorism, I should be clear. And back in the old days, you know, Al Qaeda used to do all this recruiting person to person. And then they were able to, in various ways, move it online. Can you talk about how militias use the internet in that kind of way? We are, what we are seeing is militias have gotten really good at targeting interest-based communities or uh, communities that might have a, you know, an interest in tactical activity or, or tactical um, sort of lifestyle. And this kind of connects to something that you and Keith were, uh, Heath were discussing earlier about the intersection of a lot of these movements with often active law enforcement or 
former law enforcement um, folks. And part of it is because a lot of these groups that self-identify as either uh, former troops or former law enforcement who gather online are very easy to find. And if you find groups, enough groups like this who are also feeling disenfranchised and have been feeling abandoned or feeling like the last two years the U.S. has experienced perhaps government overreach in ways that they haven't experienced before, there is enough sentiment there for militias to find fertile ground to recruit. So I think that online militias are flocking firstly to where audiences already are, where like-minded audiences are already are, and this is um, alt-tech platforms like Telegram, and also to target interest-based communities, like folks, folks who are already into tactical and gun culture, who already have um, ideolog ideological um, closeness with libertarian and a constitutionally small and limited uh, government. And, and that has been so far the playbook. One of the things that we are also seeing is that this hijacking of, of larger mainstream uh, right-wing events in that you see these parallel sort of satellite events for the far right that become really useful for recruiting folks who might not be as extreme but have like-minded um, ideas on some issues. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So we have a we have another question, and I'm going to mutilate your name, and I apologize. It's either Jolion or Jolion Larson. Uh, we've unmuted your microphone. Please ask your question, and please correct my pronunciation. Hi, thank you so much, uh, and I really appreciated this talk. Uh, my name is Jolion Larson, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Vermont. My question stems from the theory of stochastic terrorism or that violence can be incited by socially influential actors without there being a direct linear connection between the influential actor and the individuals or groups that carry out the actual violence. Heath, you mentioned that many of these militia group chapters often operate primarily in a decentralized way. Are you concerned about how the decentralized structure of these groups might make our communities more vulnerable to stochastic violence at their hands? Further, if you had to make recommendations to policymakers on how to address the potential for militia-driven stochastic terrorism, then what would you recommend? Do we address the sp specific militia groups, the influential actors that blow the whistle, both, and how? Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you for the detailed question. Um, and I definitely want to get Christina's perspective on it as well. Um, because I think she'll probably have a, a sort of a, a different um, a different view of it than me as a researcher. But but I would say the main point is that I think there is a lot of concern about the decentralized nature because there isn't you know there isn't a leader for 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 these movements. There are local leaders, but there isn't somebody who can put the brakes on if they see things going too far. Um, and I think. The vast majority of the people that I have spoken to who are either leaders in the movement 
or just rank and file members, I don't think they're looking to commit violence. Now, that's not to say that they're not, you know, ready in their minds to fight the government if they become whatever tyrannical means. Um, but I think the thing that really worries people, and we've seen it happen, is you do have people who take this message and they take it farther and they want to see action. And they say, okay, we're talking, maybe we're lobbying politicians even, but that's not enough. You know, I want to take direct action. And, and we've seen deadly, we've seen deadly incidents. And I think, um, I think that's something that a lot of folks have in the back of their minds. Um, I don't think it's an accident that we hear a lot about the Oklahoma City bombing from 1995, the deadliest uh, act of domestic terrorism in American history, where a, you know, two, two people with extreme anti-government views who had dabbled in um, the Michigan militia blew up a federal building. And, and there's a lot of researchers I talked to who are worried that there could be a, you know, mass violence event like that from somebody who is radicalized by these views and takes it way farther than maybe the vast majority of people in the movement. Um, but I, I'd also be really interested to hear from Christina about her perspective on, uh, you know, especially how she's seeing these groups interact online. I think I, I fully agree that decentralization definitely opens up the potential for more risk at localized levels. We're already seeing how post January 6th, a lot of some of the, the playbook for the far right was to go from an interest in national issues to an interest in local issues and start approaching um, their activism and targeted towards what they saw as tyrannical local mandates or the tyrannical state demanding to teach children about critical race theory and getting involved at the local level became a way for like the, the extremists to also recruit some ordinary folks that are not usually very involved in politics. One of the one of the main issues about violence with decentralization, like Keith said, is that there isn't necessarily one figure that can make violence stop. And for many of these groups, especially like at decentralized levels, smaller groups that might be operating in places of the internet when they're not as easy to monitor and find, for some of these groups, violence is not the means, violence is the point because they ascribe to more accelerationist ideologies, which you want to use violence to bring about a major crisis that will push for a new system. So a lot of these groups are actually opportunistic and using the cover of you know, this fight against tyranny, against the overreach of a, a tyrannical government to actually push for much darker ends which would be just violence for the sake of violence, violence for the sake of um, creating a, a crisis that like puts an end to the system. And that's, that's what is really, really risky at the local level, um, more than the decentralization, I believe. So I've got a question about deplatforming, and maybe we, you guys can come at it from two different angles. The first is from the angle on the ground. Uh, Heath, if you've seen any effects that deplatforming have in the people that you've been interviewing for this Extremely American podcast, 
And Christina, you know, whether you've seen it more in sort of that research aspect of whether or not you've seen any changes. So Heath, you first, please. Yeah, I mean, I was actually surprised at how um, straightforward uh, a lot of militia leaders were with me when they got deplatformed. They said it really hurt them, um, at least at first. Um, it did have an effect. Um, it was harder to reach out. It was, it was also a lot harder, um, and I heard this um, across the country. Um, I heard this in Idaho. I heard this in Michigan. Um, they were saying that it's a lot harder to connect with other militias and other militia members around the country to kind of compare notes um, and especially plan action. Uh, you know, we had talked about COVID earlier. So it, it did hurt their ability to kind of organize anti-COVID measure or anti-pandemic restriction stuff. Um, and what I saw was, you know, I, I kind of went out on the road with some of these militias to see what they were doing on the ground. And what they were doing is, is organizing old-fashioned face-to-face events. You know, they'd rent a hall and pack it and tell people what their ideas were and then have a pen and paper up front to sign up. Um, they went old school. Um, and certainly it, that seemed effective. I mean, you know, uh, I went out with Ammon Bundy, who's sort of a, a spiritual leader of the militia movement, if not technically a, a, a militia leader. And man, he was he was packing these he was packing these halls and people were excited and people were lining up to sign up uh, and, and join his movement. So um, I think it hurt them, but I think it also just sort of changed the way they operate. So we, I, Christina, go ahead. Sorry, I think after the initial shock of the great deplatforming, what we saw online was a great scattering, um, like a report from the Atlantic Council referred to this as a great scattering because what you saw was a lot of groups trying to find which was going to be the next platform that could house all of their ideas with either explicit promises to approach content moderation extremely um, with extremely lax criteria or to not moderate at all. And so what we saw was a, a fragmentation of where these conversations and organization was taking place. And one of the platforms that mostly benefit, benefited from this fragmentation was Telegram, which is a, um, an encrypted platform. Some of it is encrypted, not the, the public channels, but that functions pretty much like a messaging app would and that allows folks to broadcast messages to channels that contain hundreds of thousands of, of followers. And this is slightly different than um, other social media platforms in that it makes it harder to find where these groups are organizing. Once they are in a group that can be made private, they are pretty much isolated from monitoring. Like he said, this, this comes with the downside for them that they cannot as easily find each other, find like-minded people. They might not be able to surf on algorithmic recommendations that can allow them to find new audiences. What we're gonna see now, and we're starting to see it already, is that these Telegram groups and these you know, other alternative social media platforms still rely on the mainstream media platforms to get traffic, to, get, to become noticed. And so you still see in different Facebook groups that might not be explicitly marked as extremists. They might just be 
a group that is really against COVID mandates. Um, you start seeing a lot of Telegram channels being promoted there that tendentially agree with some of the mandates, but that have more extremist um, rhetoric in them and in which a lot of extreme, extreme content gets forwarded to. So it definitely had an effect and it's defragmentation. Yeah, it's also this idea of, of certain ideas actually being kind of like a gateway drug, right? That you may start out feeling very confident about sort of COVID ideas that you have, and then you meet people who you normally wouldn't meet unless you meet them online, who have those same ideas and then introduce you to new ones that seem part and parcel of this. For people who are just joining us, let me uh, remind you what we're doing here. Um, I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Click Here, which is about all things cyber and intelligence. And we're talking to Heath Drusen and Christina Lopez. Uh, Heath is the creator and host of the podcast Extremely American, which you can get where everybody gets their podcasts these days. And uh, Christina is with a research group looking at uh, far-right extremism with Graphica, an Intel and threat uh, company. So uh, let's try and, and solve this problem, or at least see what we might be able to do. Christina, let's start with you. Um, I mean, do you see solutions? We talked about deplatforming. Is that the solution? Is better rhetoric and more education, more civics education, some people say, is that the solution? What do you think? I think there is no one solution. I think that many of the approaches that we're seeing now uh, coming from social media platforms, becoming much better about detecting early threats or becoming more bold about enforcing um, actual policies like the policies already exist, where we have gaps sometimes is in the enforcement. I think that there have to be a number of solutions to approach at least the organizing. Um, because once you cross uh, the, the boundary of violence, there's plenty of laws that can help with that. But with the issue of organizing and radicalization, I think that we, the jury's still out on how we approach the new fragmented world in which a lot of separate initiatives are organizing in tinier and isolated um, channels online. In, in terms of continuing to look at the rhetoric that we see online, I think that one of the biggest solutions is, is to take it seriously, is to not assume that it's just bluster, to not see it as just hyperbolic to start seeing that putting together these events that produce this amazing online content like the like trucker convoys or you, you saw it on January 6th that it was not just like the culmination of online organization efforts, it was also the, the production of, of content for many, many years to come that will be used for um, propaganda and recruitment of, of, of new folks because it generated really powerful images that, again, will be um, will continue to be used. So I think like part of the solution is to start taking this rhetoric seriously and seeing that the lines that were crossed in January 6 are are still are still going to continue to be crossed, especially when you have um, legitimate voices in power that have done a lot to rewrite history, 
produce revisionist takes in terms of what happened in January 6th and, and legitimize what is, at the end of the day, an anti-democratic movement. So Heath, we've got four minutes left. Um, so how about solution and rounding thumbs, things up for us? Yeah, um, and I'll, I'll, I'll take it from a slightly um, different perspective than Christina. Um, you know, I, <laughs> it obviously depends on your perspective. You know, there's plenty of Americans who uh, are freaked out by these groups and see them as the problem. Uh, these groups might say that they're solution. They're the solution. Um, however, I will say, um, I think a big thing, whatever your perspective is, and I'm sure there's plenty of people who are kind of in the middle, um, it's pretty important to vote in your local elections. Um, a lot of these battles are happening there and these elections fly under the radar. It's a big part of my podcast. Um, and I mean, not a lot of people vote in these elections, right? Um, how many people know who their county commissioners are? How many people know who their local school board is? How many people know who their library board members are? Um, I'll be honest, if you gave me a pop quiz right now, I, I would fail that one. Um, so I think a big thing that came out of this is just how much power can be wielded in these really kind of obscure political positions, because we can talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, who's got famously extreme views, but Marjorie Taylor Greene's probably not going to affect your life much in Illinois or Idaho. Um, but who is going to affect your life if you have kids, especially is somebody on the school board, they can change policy. They are changing policy your library board, that can affect your community. We're already seeing books being banned. Um, county commissioners, they actually make a lot of decisions that can impact your life. Same with city council. So, um, you know, it may sound a little bit dull, like a civics lesson, but I think we're seeing the importance of these local elections and these groups see them as winnable because people don't vote in them and they don't need to get that many votes. And I think whatever your viewpoint is on these things, if you're not voting in your local election, then you're basically ceding ground to uh, the, the folks who are filling that vacuum. So if uh, you all, I'm sorry, it's come to the end of our hour, but if, if you all would like to learn more about this, I highly recommend Heath's uh, new podcast called Extremely American. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, I have a podcast as well that's called Click Here just came out, which uh, takes a look at cyber and intelligence, which is not completely different than what uh, Heath and Christina are doing. And uh, Heath, what's your Twitter handle? I am at hdruzin, H-D-R-U-Z-I-N. Okay, and Christina? If people want to follow you, what's your Twitter, Twitter handle? I am at Chris... Lopez G, which is C-R-I-S, Lopez G on Twitter. And you all should also follow Graphica. We produce a lot of really interesting reports about this. Yes, I will be in touch with you. I think Graphica's stuff is great. And uh, I'm Dina Temple-Raston. My Twitter handle is at NPR Dina. I know I've left NPR, but a lot of people know me from there. And uh, we really thank you for uh, having this conversation with us today. Beyond January 6th, how militias are trying to remake America. Thank you.